It's my pleasure and my honor to introduce Professor Khalid Bos, who is a professor emeritus at the Martin Buber Institute for Jewish Studies at Cologne, where he's been my supervisor. <laughs> and Khalid is very widely known and widely published on medical, medieval medical texts, texts by Maimonides and by Ibn al-Jazzar. And he is also at the moment a senior fellow at the Edelson Center for the History of Science in Jerusalem. And Herit has published important works on medical terminology. And he'll talk to us today sorry, about medieval Jewish traditions on memorization in medical and magical texts. So if you magically remember everything at the end of the talk. <laughs> Um, thank you for the introduction, um, and of course, thank you, uh, Sasha, for inviting me, though I think it's a mixed blessing, <coughs> as I realized today that, um, well, what I'm doing is, okay, it, it, it touches upon what you're doing, but, I mean, it's a wonderful project, and uh, I'm deeply impressed by uh, the team you have gathered. Um, I apologize for the fact that I'm not uh, presenting this uh, paper in a sing-song manner. Uh, my, the advantage is that you will not remember it. So that's, that's good for me. Okay. Memory, okay, memorization and its strengthening. When such diverse means as drugs, mnemonics, and memory training received much attention, much attention in ancient and medieval literature. That is, before the invention of the printing press made books widely available. It was a central theme for the adherents of Judaism and Islam because of their oral traditions. Only by memorizing and retelling their religious traditions could Jews and Muslims ensure the survival of their religions. The importance of memorization is stressed time and again in the Hebrew Bible. The verb zachar appears in its various declensions in the Bible no less than 169 times, usually with either Israel or God, as the subject, for memory is incumbent on both. As Ishmael is enjoined to remember, so it is a Jew not to forget. The Mishnah is the Mishnah. Okay, I don't know if I'm explaining it, but uh, one of the means to facilitate uh, the memorization of the Mishnah was to recite the Mishnah Yot with melody. Thus, the law itself proclaims in the metaphor of Rabbi Akiva. Zamir bi tudira zamir. Sing me again and again. Rabbi Yochanan applies the verse, moreover, I gave them laws that were not good and rules by which they could not live, to one who reads the scripture without a melody or repeats the Mishnah without a tune. Commenting on this, the Tosafists say, uh, uh, said, and I quote, they were used to recite the Mishnah Yot with melody because they studied them by heart, and because of this, they were better remembered." End of quote. Rabbi Israel Lipschitz, author of the Mishnahic commentary, Tif Eret Yisrael, well aware of the fact that the Mishnah was sung, went even so far to suggest that certain stylistic peculiarities, such as lacunae and tautologies, were due to a certain textual form, dictated by meter and melody. And he says, and he says, were I not afraid, I would suggest that they had specific melodies for each and every mission. And this was in order to strengthen their memorization. And for this reason, when there is a lacuna in the text, they left it as such. 
End of quote. The Mishnah itself has in its syntax and language a distinctive rhythmic flow, a sort of cadence, begging to be memorized. Traces of the recitation of the Mishnah with melody can be found in editions and manuscripts of the text itself, dating from different periods. The Palma manuscript, dating from the 12th century, is not only vocalized, but also has a system of cantillation. It should be noted that the custom of reading a loudly melody in order to memorize large amounts of text was widespread in the ancient world. Marrow informs us that at least beginners used to recite in a sing-song manner, manner syllable by syllable. It is even today the, the method of memorization in Judaism, in uh, the yeshivot. In Islam, the Quran is put to memory in African schools by children chanting texts in sing-song fashion. First the shorter surahs, and then the longer and later ones. And many Brahmins learn the more than 1,000 hymns of the Rig Veda by heart. Another natural, you might say, rational means employed to strengthen memorization was, as we have already seen in the dictum of Rabbi Akiva, Zamir bi Tudira Zamir, cursing me again and again, i.e. repetition. Moreover, it is stated, Rabbi Yeshua says, he who studies and does not repeat his study is like one who sows and does not read, and one who studies Torah but forget is, forgets, forgets it. I'm sorry about the simile. is like a woman who gives birth and buries her child. Memorization, or better, exact memorization, was of course of vital importance in the case of the Mishnah, since the reliability of the law depended on it. Learning inaccurate data could un undermine its entire structure. The Talmud stresses the importance of memorization of the Torah in different sayings, such as, and I quote, Rabbi Eliezer said also, whoever forgets through neglect any part of his study causes his children to go into exile. As it is said, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I also will forget thy children, end of quote. About the use of mnemonics, the Talmud says, rather say the Judeans who were exact in their language and who laid down mnemonics for their aid retained their learning. But the Galileans, who were not exact in their language, and who laid down no mnemonic as an aid, did not retain their learning, end of quote. As mnemonics, the Talmud recommends, next to melodious recitation and repetition, a word or phrase made up of the initial letters of a number of words, such as la'at, for a lev, ayin, and tov. Already in classical antiquity, we find that the Sophist Hippias taught, according to Plato, an elaborate system of mnemonics, Socrates stated about him, and yet I forget your art of memory in which you think you are most brilliant. To the realm of popular medicine, magic and folklore belongs the Talmudic recommendation of the following foods and beverages to strengthen memory. It is said, five things restore one's learning, wheat bread and much more so wheat itself, eating a roasted egg without salt, frequent consumption of olive oil, frequent indulgence in wine and spices, and the drinking of water that has remained from kneading, end of course. The same text also mentions five things to abstain from because they make one forgets one's studies. And I quote, eating something from which a mouse or a cat has eaten, eating the heart of a beast, frequent consumption of olives, drinking the remains of water that was used for washing, washing one's feet one above the other. Next to these five things, it refers to ten things which adversely affect one's study, passing under the bit of a camel, and much more so under the camel itself. 
passing between two camels, passing between two women, passing of a woman between two men, passing under the offensive order of a carcass, passing under a bridge under which water has not flowed for 40 days, eating bread that was insufficiently baked, eating meat out of a soup ladle, drinking from a stream that had run through a graveyard, looking into the face of a dead body or the reading of an inscription upon the grave. These traditions reflecting a kind of common law are not specific to Judaism, but occur in classical literature and Islam. Cato the Elder remarks in Cicero's De Semectute, when I read the inscriptions on gravestones, I am not afraid to lose my memory, as they say, for by reading these, I return to the memory of the dead. And Abul Qasim al-Ghalib al-Istahani drew up a list of nine things harmful for one's memory, and one of them being the eating of food from which a mouse has eaten. Next to these different exoteric means, Jewish rabbinic tradition refers to an esoteric memory technique consisting of learning the oral law combined with a mystical vision of the, God, of the secrets of the Godhead. This kind of learning protects the abbot, the adept from forgetfulness. The mystical Hegelot describes visions of ascents into heavenly palaces and contains a description of the magical technique of conjuring the Saha Torah, the angel of the Torah, a technique which enables the adept to study the Torah and to retain it perfectly. It also states that when Moses had ascended to God, he received certain magical names. By mentioning them, one will never forget one's learning of Bible, Mishnah, Talmud, Agadot, and Halachot. The Seder of Rav Amram Gaon, already mentioned earlier, mentioned an incantation conjuring Putha, the angel of forgetfulness. This incantation was widely disseminated by medieval legal works, and was then adopted by the Lurianic Kabbalah and Svat, and also by many other prayer books. In a recipe for forgetfulness ascribed to Sa'adya, Sa'adya Ga'om, it is stated, and I quote, a recipe for forgetfulness, tested and reliable. Rabbi Sa'adya Bar Yosef used to employ it when he had found it in the cave of Rabbi Elazar Hakadir, the famous Paitan. All the sages of Israel, their students, use it and have success with it. Take at the beginning of the month Siwan, flower of barley, knead it while standing, make cakes of it, and write on it, Zecha Asa Le Nivelo Tav. Psalms 111. Then take an egg, boil. Then take an egg, boil it well, peel it, and write on it, and then a collection of magical names. Eat that cake every day for 40 days with the egg, and you will learn everything you like to. So will not forget it. Now this, of course, is reminds one of um, Ephraim's um, book, Appearing for the Lettuces, and the new book on the uh, initiation ritual with uh, Ashkenazi school children uh, where they eat caked cakes and eggs. I see, the pay, I see the payment help going Yes, eggs with magical names on it. <laughs> it is clear that instead of names, this magical praxis involves employs the Bible words <laughs> which is used more often against forgetfulness. The Sefer Mission not a medical treatise of a profound magical character ascribed to the polymath Avram Ibn Ezra Based on the lost treatise by the Andalusian physician El Kotobi, who died in 951, quotes the following magical recipes for someone suffering from forgetfulness. Said Dioscurides, if you take the stone called Lapis Judaicus, which has streaks <coughs> on its surface, and hang it on him, this will help him regain his memory. He who wears it will also be saved from every evil eye and every kind of sorcery. 
and th that they will not be able to dominate him. And Atabar, he said, famous Arab physician, every eye of the hoopoe together <coughs> with his tongue is hung on his neck, he will remember more than he has forgotten. Says Razes, famous Razi, if you take one of a wolf's teeth as well as his claws and feet and put them in a piece of linen cloth and hang them on the neck of the person who has lost his memory, he will benefit from it. Said the experimenter, if the head, uh, if the head and tongue of a kaku are taken and hung on this person, the result will be a manifest improvement of memory. End of quote. The interest in stones and their magical properties was already widespread in antiquity. Many early writers on herbs also wrote on stones. Theophrastus, Dioscurides, Pliny, and others included much material minerals in their works, largely treating them from the mythological and medical point of view. In the medieval West, the lapidary by Marboat of Rennes enjoyed a tremendous popularity. Recently, or a few years ago, I, with a colleague, edited a, a Hebrew translation of this uh, uh, Latin or uh, Norman uh, version uh, of the um, Marboat's stone book by Brachia Benetronai Hanagdan, which I think was a sort of part of his agenda to introduce popular Christian uh, knowledge into Jewish circles right? versus Avram Iber Ezra, who introduced a more learned version of uh, science uh, and based on Arab source, Arabic sources into the into Christian into uh, Jewish society. It was Brachia who did it on the basis of Christian Latin Latin sources or Latin sources that have been translated into a vernacular. Marbot placed, according to John Riddle, an emphasis on the mystical and practical virtues of each stone. In Islam, there was a many-sided interest for stones. They were described in different kinds of literature, such as medical, commercial, technical, and chemical. But most of all, in a special type of stone books, yeah, which are mainly magical, such as the famous and very influential stone book ascribed to Aristotle, which you mentioned today. The recommendation of bodily parts of animals makes this composition closely related to a genre popular in Arabic literature, which is called Qutub Manafe al-Hayawan, on the benefits of animals, and which was initiated by Xenocrates of Aphrodisias. He introduced animal means into therapeutics and had a strong influence on Arab authors practicing this genre. But we should not forget uh, that also an eminent rationalist uh, physician like Maimonides has long missed in his uh, medical aphorisms, which of course they are basically they are workings, they are translations of the works of Galen, but in his long list, uh, which are not based on Galen, but Maimonides gives his own uh, recommendations of, of drugs that could be used. There are long lists of animal parts, hundreds actually. So one might be amazed how someone like Maimonides can recommend this sort of material. And uh, the one of the uh, explanations therefore given is, also as Maimonides himself says, for instance, in his commentary on the properties aphorisms, that so far we, we do not know yet how these things work, but they work. And so it belongs to the so-called uh, Sugulot uh, literature, Khawas uh, in Arabic. So they have uh, an effect that is 
as yet unknown to us, but who knows in the future we will know why they work, and therefore he allows, he allows for them. An Arab author dealing with these uh, animal means extensively in his medical encyclopedia was the mention of tabari. A useful definition of the magic reflected in the text discussed until now can be found in the formulation of a Jewish polemicist who was also an observer of the religious phenomenon of his time, the 10th century Karaite heseriologist uh, Yaakov Al-Kizani. His book of Lights and Watchtowers contains a lengthy philosophical diatribe against magical and occult practices. In the course of his treatise, he defines forbidden witchcraft, seher, uh, as follows. The type of witchcraft which is forbidden to be practiced is the one about which the performers thereof claim that it works miracles, transforms nature, sways human hearts towards love or hatred, generates illnesses in or removes them from human bodies, without using such means as comestibles, poisons, blows, or similar things or that it counteracts all these, all these by means of spoken, written, otherwise expressed incantations, end of quote. As the editor, Leon Nimoy, notes, Kirkizani does not accuse the Rabbanite leadership directly of those practices. Rather, he claims that the Rabbanites give validity to those, to those practices that were encouraging them. In addition to these magical means, we also find recommendations of the ingestion of different kinds of natural ingredients for improving memory, yeah, as we have already seen by in the instance of the cakes. <coughs> the idea that it is possible to strengthen memory by these means is related to the ancient medieval conception of the brain and its functions. Gershon ben Solomon of Ireland, also already uh, mentioned by Yasha a brief popular summary of the natural sciences, states the nature of the brain is cold and humid. The reason for the coldness is known. It is made without flesh and without fat, neither on itself nor on the head. But flesh and fat are warm and make warm the objects near to them. The brain must have the said properties for two reasons. Third, if the nature of the brain were warm, it would glow and burn because of the many movements which go out of it. Second, in order to moderate the warmth of the heart, which is very high. Therefore, the heart is put against the brain. From the brain go vessels to the heart to moderate its warmth, and from the heart to the brain to moderate its cold. Thus harmonize the activities of these two, which are the princes and heads of the organs, as we have explained. The cold of the brain needs correction. If it were entirely cold, it could not think and remember, as is found in those who have a cold brain. They are weak in thinking, reason, and memory. End of quote. In, a, in accordance with the medical theory current in these days, which was based upon Galen, the famous Roman physician, the therapy would have consisted of warm remedies. And this theory, developed by Galen, was adopted by all major Arab physicians and Jewish physicians and dominated throughout the Middle Ages. Galen, Gershon continues his discussion of memory and forgetfulness with an anatomical description of the different ventricles of the brain and their mental properties which are mainly derived, or his description is mainly derived from the Hebrew translation of Averwi's epistle of Aristotle's memory treatise, entitled De Memoria et Reminiscentia. He refers to the fact that Ibn Rushd, uh, Averwi, distinguishes between retention and recollection, and that damage occurring to the posterior ventricles of the brain, where these activities are located, immediate cause forgetfulness. An important role 
was assigned to the De Memoria et Reminiscentia, which the great scholastics Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas treated as a kind of memory treatise. For these scholastics and for the later memory tradition, there was a relation between mnemonic theory and Aristotle's theory of knowledge and the importance assigned by both to imagination. The treatment implicit in the statement of Gershon is explicitly recommended by Mei al-Dabi, 13th century author of the Shvile Emuna, Paths of Faith, sort of a popular encyclopedia. He remarks that memory is the result of the cooperation of the imaginative, estimative, and memorative faculties, and that forgetfulness occurs when one of these is impaired. And he continues, and I quote, because the brain is similar to a worm, the so-called vermis cerebelli, and I must admit that many, many years ago, when I started to work on Arabic medical treatises, that was a Hebrew uh, translation of the text by Ibn al-Jazar, Rizal of Yomizyan, treatise on forgetfulness in his Hebrew translations, and there I came upon the word dude. I thought, dude, a worm in the brain? Can't be, this must be a, a mistake. As, you know, I couldn't believe it. So I rushed over to my neighbor who studied medicine. I said, you know, the, the, this must be pure nonsense. And, and then he, I, but I knew the, the, the Latin term, the, and I knew the, that it was the vermis cerebelli. And he immediately recognized it. He said, well, look into a book on anatomy, and you find this brain. And there is, there is a thing like that in the brain, which is called the vermis cerebelli. So that's, maybe that triggered my interest in this field. I don't know, all these crazy things. <laughs> Who knows? So in the act of remembrance, a central role was played by the vermicidic belly as distributor of the psychical pneuma from the anterior to the posterior ventricle of the brain. This pneuma, an elusive vapor, and prepared in the anterior part of the brain from the air inhaled through the nose, fills the brain and its ventricles and activates its functions. And this pneuma, so this, this substance which we cannot see, uh, invisible, is at the basis of the functioning of the human body, the, the human body and the, men, the, the bodily functions and the mental functions. This theory was for the mo- first time formulated by Galen in his De Usis Patrum and was generally accepted by Arab and Jewish physicians and philosophers. Prof. Yaduran, also mentioned today, <laughs> Sorry, just repeating, I think. Recommends in the introduction to his grammatical work, Maase Efort, 15 ways to improve one's memory. And to learn with, maybe I can shorten this a little bit, you can read them all. To learn with other, stu- other eminent students from an eminent scholar. Oh, that's obvious, I think. For in this way, the natural heat is awakened, which strengthens the faculty of the soul. Among them, the faculty of recollection and retention. Now, this recommendation is a combination of data from the Jewish tradition on the study in the Gavruta and from ancient and medieval medicine. And the concept of the natural heat, also called the innate heat, already formulated by Hippocrates and Aristotle, became fundamental in Galen's physiology. Seated in the heart and arteries, it pervades all parts of the body, is responsible for most of its activities. He even goes so far to remark that nature and the soul are in fact nothing else else but this heat. And then two, to study these works of Jewish, those works of Jewish scholars which give a general survey and are concise. Three, to try to understand the meaning of what one is reading. 
four to use mnemonics, five to study a certain object only from one specific book at the same time, six to study in a pleasant place from beautiful books, you know, to read aloud, to recite the Bible, to study the Bible in Gemara written in square Hebrew characters, Ktav Ashari, to read from books written in bold letters, to teach someone else from one's learning. Well, we all know that. To study some subject at one's leisure, to study the Torah for its own sake, and to study at fixed times, to pray to God to grant health, and to fulfill one's need to study, understand, remember, and retain. These kinds of advices thus seem to be a combination of data collected from medicine, common sense, experience, tradition, folklore, and piety. Judah ben Yuchiel and Messer Meyon, 15th century Italian rabbi, teacher, physician, and philosopher, and I'm sorry, I'm moving a little bit beyond the Middle Ages. I hope you will forgive me. Although 15th century is, in a way, Jewish Middle Ages, but he is a, a, a representative of the Jewish humanism of the Renaissance. He's the author of a work on rhetorics entitled Nofet Sufim, The Honeycomb's Flow. In this work, based on the rhetorical rules of Cicero and Quintilian, the author, quoting Tullio, Cicero, gives a description of the ancient mnemonic of places and images. He distinguishes between two kinds of memory, the natural, tiv-e, and artificial, melachuti. This last kind, using places, bukomot, and forms, tsurot, is the one by which the natural memory should be strengthened. The ancient mnemonic of places and images goes back to Simonides of Chaos, a Greek poet living from 556 until 468 BC. The story goes that Simonides was with hundreds of other guests invited to a banquet. During the banquet, the roof of the banquet hall fell in, crushing all the guests. Only Simonides was saved by a miraculous intervention of the gods. Though the bodies of the guests were mangled beyond recognition, Simonides could identify them by remembering the place where every guest had been sitting. Simonides owed his phenomenal brain to the fact that he had arranged his mind according to space. The poet had a mental picture of the banquet hall with the seats of every guest. But the association of the images, the guests, with certain places, the poet could move from sea to sea and see where every guest had been. This mnemonic was transmitted to Rome, where it became part of rhetorics, as a technique by which the orator could improve his memory. It is described in Cicero's De, Orata, De Oratore, Quintilian's Institutio Oratoria, and most of all in the anonymous Adchaium Herenium. This work, which was thought to be from the hand of Cicero as well, and was very prestigious, was the main source of transmission of the ancient mnemonic to the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Judah distinctions, distinction of two kinds of memories, namely natural and artificial, and its definition of the artificial memory as established from places and images is based on this work. <clears throat> the different suggestions for improving memory mentioned so far have been admirably summarized by Yuda Ayer of Modena, Leon Modena, 1571-1648, in a tract on mnemonics entitled Leif Arie, Heart of a Lion. Yuda was a Jewish scholar born in Venice of a notable French family that had migrated to Italy after an expulsion of Jews from France. He was a precocious child and grew up to be a respected rabbi in Venice. However, his reputation within traditional Judaism suffered for a number of reasons, including an unyielding criticism 
of emerging sects within Judaism, an addiction to gambling and lack of stable character. As Graves points out, this last factor prevented his gifts from maturing. He pursued all sorts of occupations to support himself, those of preacher, teacher of Jews and Christians, reader of prayers, interpreter, writer, proofreader, bookseller, broker, merchant, rabbi, musician, matchmaker, and manufacturer of amulets. In this great guy, I would say. In this treatise, he distinguishes between three methods of strengthening the memory. The magical, which involves Bible verses, incantations, amulets, and spells. Referring to Avram ibn Ezra, Judah cites the following magical recipe. Amongst the remedies of the Rava, we find the eye and tongue of the Shachaf, which is traditionally interpreted as the seagull, which is called Kuku, and we have seen Kaku, in a foreign language, fumigated with castorium, and the so-called the yellow secretion from the testicles of the beaver, a beaver guile uh, in German, and hung on the neck of someone is very good for forgetfulness, and the code. Judah's own opinion about the use of these means is strongly negative, although he himself was an amulet maker. If you will listen to my advice, let not your heart seduce you to look for a remedy which strengthens your memory by means of Bible verses, amulets, incantations, and spells, and openings of the heart. Has written about it, the technique of memory, memorization called Petit Halev, probably also because of a medical concept that the heart was the center of the mental activities, following Aristotle, contrary Galen, who thought that the brain was the center of the major activities. So he said, Don't you know that we are not allowed to use them? For Hillel said, Whoever makes unworthy use of the crown of learning passes away. The crown, the crown, where the ineffable name of God is is engraved upon. For those who make use of it are in no way successful, but every one of them looks and becomes stricken and demented. And experience has shown this to us. Then the medical. Yuda mentions what the physician said about the ascension from certain kinds of food, the consumption of balador, we'll see what it is, and other drugs, and the rubbing of the head with oils to strengthen memory. Yuda expresses his own opinion about the usefulness of these different means as follows. I've seen and known many people who, because of a frequent use of different oils and because of the eating of all kinds of baladur, lost their mind and got crazy. <laughs> or got sick and died before the time and were not remembered anymore. This happens because most people cannot administer the patient an oil or drug which fits the temperament of his brain in heat called moisture and dryness. So it's a practical consideration. It's not a principle, it's a practical one. And if they use a drug which dries his brain too much, or makes it too moist, he gets crazy or sick." End of quote. His opinion is, just as in the preceding case, very negative. He not only doubts the wholesome effect of these drugs, but even considers them to be dangerous for one's health when applied unjudiciously. The drug of Baladur was, judging by Judah's emphatic warning and his frequent recommendation, 
in medical literature an extremely popular means against forgetfulness. It is mentioned in popular Jewish literature as well. Balador, so that's the Latin semi-carpus on a cardium L marking nut originally uh, from India. The third method referred to by Judah is a classical, used by the ancient Greeks and Romans, the technique consisting in associating images with places. Judah calls this memory, this mnemonic, Zikaron Mekomi, or Zikaron Melachoti, and recommends it with the following words, this is something which is not harmful because it is a natural thing, and everything which is natural cannot harm, in the quote. Okay. Finally, just a, a conclusion. Jewish legal literature discusses the subject of forgetfulness with a focus on the central question. If someone, when he forgets something of what he learned, transgresses, transgresses a love and a prohibition already stipulated in the Torah. Of extreme importance in this respect is, of course, the ruling of the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch declares, I quote, if someone forgets one thing of what he learned because he did not repeat it, Scripture states that he is, as it were, guilty of a capital crime. End of quote. In the light of this statement, it will be clear how acute the problem of forgetfulness was and still is for every observant Jew. It becomes even more acute when one considers the fact that forgetfulness not only had a legal, but also a social impact. For a learned man, a Tamit Chacham had a very respected social position in Jewish society throughout the ages. A position threatened by forgetfulness, as the following warning shows, and be careful to respect an old man who has forgotten his knowledge through no fault of his own. For it is said, both the whole tables and the fragments of the tables, so that's me, for instance, okay, were placed in the ark. And quote and end of what I wanted to tell you. So maybe I can add, so as to the relevance today, well, you can see what I think, what we can learn from what we have seen is that to, for, to, to deal with the problem of forgetfulness, different means were applied time and again and throughout the ages. And they were taken from all sorts of traditions, uh, from folklore, from magic, from medicine, rational one. And um, there was no uh, principle uh, prohibition or a principle statement that said, no, uh, in principle, you cannot use these or those. It was based on, on experience and on practice. If it is effective, okay, use it. It's, uh, it's like with a remedies. Uh, if it works, fine with us, use it. And we have no problem with it. And this is what I think is the, um, can be applied, is valid for uh, this particular uh, problem as well. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Questions, please. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Harriet. Very uh, 
Very excellent as usual. I, I think there's another important connection to today. You alluded to it, um, and that is, are these memory techniques meant for the elite, or some of them seem to suggest that they're meant precisely not for the elite? It's interesting that scholars who debate whether Hechalot literature is a high-level literature or not as high-level literature debate it in part, even though the people who cite it, the rabbinic figures who cite it, think it's very high-level. They argue that Hechalot couldn't have been composed by the highest level of rabbinic scholars because they remember the tricks not to forget are for the lower scholars. So that's, I don't think that theory is right in research, no, but the fact of the matter is... Um, you know, say the magic words and win a prize. If if you you know, does does it work for substantive memory or does it work for weaker memories? And does it matter if it's physical or or physiological or psychological? So I think there's a lot of um, you know interesting issue here of memory. F- for whom is memory needed? And for whom does the memory work? Anyway, yeah. just well, basically, I think the, the basic Jewish tradition, which is based upon repetition, I mean, we all. The Mishnah is repeated time. The Talmud, the whole Talmud is recycled, recycled time and again. It's all from the same principle, of course, that we will learn marriage. Uh, it's based on the man, on the more on an oral tradition. It's an oral tradition, so repetition is vital, and that counts for everyone, right. if you learned or not learned. And and the the, the medical, for instance, the medical from the medical point of view. Well, the application of drugs was, of course, very, com- very complicated, very problematic. And first of all, the, the, the identification of the drugs was problematic. The proper ingredients were uh, was problematic. Um, so the effect was, as Judah says, in many, they were, the practical application was dangerous and was were many risks involved. So. I think that is an area which is marginal. Maybe, like, there are, of course, practical things, like application of warm oils, mm-hmm. so to warm the brain. The application of uh, spices to to, strength, to warm the brain, which is a very practical thing, I think, but, uh, and which might have made sense. For instance, also the question of the baladur, so the marking nut. Well, there have been, uh, in India, there have been uh, chemical tests, and they try to, uh, to find out. There are many uh, pharmacists or historians of pharmacy who are looking into the practical application of the drugs mentioned in uh, in medieval uh, handbooks. Are they still of any use today? There are big projects going on, and uh, so one of these was in the point was for Baladur. Well, it appears that uh, it has an an effect on the brain. It has a hallo hallucinogenic hallus. How do you call it? Hallucinogenic. Hallucinogenic is right. Hallucinogenic effect on the brain, and it can be very, very dangerous if you apply an overdose. So Judas remarks him to be that he says, "I know, I know, noticed. I saw many people who got crazy because of its use. It's based on his experience. So it's not something which is uh, high theory. No, it's everyday practice for everybody." Who needs it? I, I oh, so that's the question. That's the question. Well, the question is, are medical is it arts... scholars, right. or is it... I mean, would a person who works as a tanner need to cultivate memory? Would well, he need to remember things in order to earn a living? Would he... Or is it the, the kind of... Is it something that only bookish people need, people who learn texts? I, I, I mean, what... what well, is well everyone in... As far as Frank can be, is a better... Uh, more <coughs> this material than I am. As far as I know, it was important 
for every observant Jew to, to have a certain amount of knowledge of the Jewish tradition, yeah. which, and uh, as people get older, memory deteriorates. And so people try to find but, where, but that's yeah. not the same as the skill of memorizing long texts, you know, which seem to me to be what one is being helped to do by all these remedies. To remember your daily duties, which are routine, which you've done all your life when you're living yeah. in a community framework, which does it, is less of a task. Mechard is not wrong because, again, you're right. If it's, if it's to learn you know, massive amounts of text, so you need a super, you need yeah. a, 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 a beyond natural, right. Yeah. We need um, whatever you use. What's that? We need whatever you yes. use to memorize everything. Anyway, it's not on the list. What's that? It's not on the list. But by the way, there are, there are, there is at the end of Tractate Horayot a whole series of practices, pra and it seems very simple. People, you wash your hands, you don't wipe them, you'll forget what you study. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't try it at home, but I have no idea what it means. <laughs> anyway, um, so so I think you're both. You know, you're right that that you have to perhaps distinguish between different types of memory. Uh, by the way, you can train memory. My memory was trained, Paul. Of course. You know, just in normal in normal discussion. But that's a different yeah. story. Um, but I inherited it. So it's, it's, it's all not. It's not. It's all. It's not for me. Anyway, um, but but the the so the question really is how extraordinary, do, how far do you go? So for example, again, to go back to sort of the mystical material, if the memory involves recitation of divine names and all kinds mm -hmm. of complex formulae, that sounds like it's not for the average no, no, no. person. I, again, you know, we think of medicine, uh, I was just watching on the BBC, they're having the healthcare issues here or whatever it is, medicine in England is for everyone, as it should be everywhere, and you know, they're working on it. Uh, in, this, in these periods, medicine was not for everyone. No, no, no. It was a matter of expense. So, so I think it may depend on what, what are we talking about. On the other hand, the presumption is that people forget. There's a very interesting uh, 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 Tosefta, that, that, and the Talmud mentions it, that Rabbi Judah the Prince, who organized the Mishnah, there were 13 versions of the Mishnah, which he then redacted. You know, he, had to, he had to coalesce, and he got sick, and he forgot them. Mm -hmm. So the Talmud, I'm, I'm not worried about whether it's true or not, but the Talmud says there was a laundry man who used to stand outside Judah the Prince's window washing the clothes while he was going over the Mishnah. So when Judah the Prince forgot the whole thing, he forgot 12 of the versions, the laundry guy said him all, he was, he was listening and he was remembering. So the mm -hmm. suggestion there is, that it's it's you know something like Mishnah. Every Jew has to you know try to know the traditional texts and so on. Um, and some people you know have memories that uh, you know that we all know uh, people who are you know doing menial things who have these photographic memories. There are people like that. Um, so I think it depends on what the what if it's a long uh, you know a massive amount, then you need these super super methods. If it's a um, uh, you know, uh, Mayor of Rothenburg says that eating the third meal on the Sabbath will cause petichat halev, will help mm -hmm. your Torah study and memory. I'm going to be eating the third meal on the Sabbath, but I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> it works. Uh, you know, but that's the question: what's the method, and what's the and what's the what's the need? So I think it has to be. That's the way I think you're saying something very important. It has to be uh, linked. But but again, all these they're very very different methods. Very diverse. Yeah, all about memory, but very diverse. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. May I ask a very small question? Like, why is olive oil good, but olives are not good for your memory? 
No, there is no rash. I mean, maybe someone would experiment uh, with his thinking. I find out something, but a lot of it, uh, of course, goes back to folklore. You know, it's tradition. Uh, which I'm, is trying, I'm trying to think what could be a reason. Yeah, well, oil is the essence. One, one more question, no. if I may. Yeah. Have you ever come across any kind of guidance or help for forgetfulness as a positive thing? Well, that's what I wanted to mention. Um, there is, a, I think, uh, Rabbi Nachman Bratzlaff speaks about the uh, blessing well, of forgetfulness. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Okay, this is why I'm asking, because I yeah. know that one. And, yeah. Do you know uh, of any others? Yeah. Now, now I know about a study. There is a study by a Russian uh, psychiatrist, which I didn't mention here in the Congress, uh, Luria. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the Russian, a Russian psychiatrist, Alexander Luria. So he had a case. He had a case of a memory artist, and he uh, wrote a book, *The Mind of the Mnemonist*. So this, uh, if you want, okay, can I go? Ahead? Yes, so please. he, this patient, ended up in his clinic b because he was pursued by an excess of memories, and he could not distinguish between things worth remembering and things best forgotten. He remembered everything from lists of nonsense words to a random infinite series of numbers. And he was capable of such feats he had because he had structured his mind as a city, with squares, roads, and junctions, as well as houses with walls, windows, rooms, and doors. If he wanted to remember a poem or story, he would divide it into fragments and associate these with the different places of the city. He would remember a passage by walking around in a city and seeing which place had been linked with which text. So that became an incredible burden yeah. for this. And he went to, uh, to this Luria yeah. for a treatment. Yeah. There's a story by Borges, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. That's by Borges. Yeah, true. Uh, I, I, I wanted to uh, remark that I, I wasn't convinced that all the uh, material you presented was actually about memorization. Um, as such, I'm just looking at the first one, which is seeing and seeing me again. Yeah. So, um, is it is it is it evident, in fact, that um, singing the Mishnah has a mnemonic function? We've intended to have a mnemonic function. It could be that the reason why you have to sing the Mishnah is to determine its correct intonation or to determine certain um, words divisions, or to, in other words, to protect the meaning of the text. Uh, rather than to um, remember it or forget it. And there are other possible functions also. Well, it could be purely literary functions. Uh, it could be to aid understanding. Uh, there are all sorts of, I think, reasons or possibilities why uh, one would want to um, want to encourage people to sing a text rather than just yeah. say it. Well, you're making a very fine distinction, but basically, if you said to protect the meaning of the text, it refers to, correct to a correct memorization. It has certainly yeah, sure linked to memorization. Purpose. I'm not sure that's what they're aiming at, so that's what they're trying to get I through. think, uh, well, if you look into a wider context of how these texts were treated in different traditions, these basic texts, like the Quran, also, you know, and the Rig Veda, so melody and sing-song was a basic instrument for memorization, already with school children, and then you're not concerned so much about all the intricacies. Yeah, you, you don't have to go there, you can just go to the reading of the Torah, which is 
Yeah, the scripture okay. in which is sung. Yes. But of course, that's the written Torah. No one is worried about forgetting it because it's written. And yet, yeah. it is reciting, uh, recited by, by singing. So, um, well, it's, a moment, yeah. it's written down, but there is a tradition before that. Mm. I, th I think, I still think, uh, look, the, these elements played, certainly played a role, but I... It's certainly what the Tosafists think is yeah. indicated. I mean, that's certainly yeah. the, the Tosafist claim is certainly that it's that's that an interpretation. Yeah. yeah, it's an interpretation. Right. No, you're, you're saying is there a primary meaning? Quite possible, but yeah. so that, that helps only if there's a fixed tune that people conform to. But if you make your own tune, then you may memorize it, but you may make the breaks in the wrong places. I mean, yeah. the, the passage of. Um, what is it? Something I can't remember now. Where he says, where there's a discussion about a passage near Vamot, Akshar Dohe, where the generations, uh, the generations are, have improved, or which is a rhetorical question. Yeah. And and he says there, very famous, of course, that in in Yeshivot in Babylonia, no one's ever seen a book. Uh, the Talmud is studied by heart and transmitted by heart, and everything is done by heart. And we have elders in our academy who are big experts and know the Talmud very well. And this is how they, this is how they intonate it. And I think the intonation is part of the transmission of the text. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, it's nothing to do with memorization. It's to do with with assigning the right meaning to to the words. Okay. But you know, there is the, the Kabbalistic tradition of reciting the Zohar, which is approved yeah. of even without, even if a person doesn't understand a word of it, doesn't know Aramaic, doesn't understand a word. It is still meritorious, so that's some kind of magical quality. But it is divorcing the recitation from meaning completely. Mm. And that I think is quite common in some Oriental mm. communities as well. But it's also maybe uh, as a tool to induce a certain state of, uh, of mind, yeah. Yeah, higher consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually had a very moving demonstration of this years ago from Arnaldo Mobiliano who, as you probably know, you know, had minimal command of Hebrew and not much traditional Jewish learning, although a great deal of historical knowledge and interest. But as an Italian Jew, he, his grandfather learned that he knew the Zohar by heart, used to recite, and he told me that one of his earliest memories as a child was listening to his grandfather recite long, long, long bits yeah. of Zohar by heart, and he reproduced it for me. Reciting, he didn't understand a word of what he was saying, but it came out, you know, quite fluently, quite a significant portion. It was very striking, mm -hmm. and he sang it. Yeah. More questions? No. Then let's thank Herit for the wonderful presentation.